Good morning, church. It's great to be with you all today. My, uh, my voice is uh, going a little bit, which makes me a little nervous. Uh, Luke, you picked some great songs, and so I'm up there belting out the songs, and I realize, oh, I can't be doing that because I still have to keep getting up here and preach. So, <clears throat> so bear with me, and uh, Lord willing, we'll have no problems with my voice throughout the, the sermon. But again, happy Thanksgiving. It is great to be here. Why don't we pray before we begin? Holy Spirit, you're the giver of the word. You're the one that takes the word and presses it into our hearts, and you're the one that that sanctifies us. And so come and do what you do, and I pray that you will enable me to faithfully represent what you have given so that Jesus would be lifted up. And we pray this in his great name. Amen. Our leaders have failed us. Those five words, our leaders have failed us, have increasingly become the refrain of people in our world today, especially among young people, the demographic that Eric mentioned I work among. A quick Google search produces a host of individuals who have said such things from a variety of walks of life, different age groups expressing the sentiment, our leaders have failed us. For example, recently, uh, teenager and activist Greta Thunberg received international press coverage when she remarked that our political leaders have failed us when it comes to protecting the environment and the climate. Greta, apparently, is not alone in her frustration. Disappointment in the behavior and the performance of our political, business, religious, uh, you name it, leaders has reached an all-time high, and satisfaction in their conduct, in their leadership, is at an all-time low. Not too long ago, in fact, I remember when civic leaders, corporate executives, military commanders, and clergy were actually respected, trusted, and even looked at as models. Not so much today. Because of highly uh, publicized personal lapses, uh, seeming inability of our leaders to deliver on their promises, and unmet expectations, people are not only disappointed in our leaders, they are becoming increasingly cynical as well. What about you? Have you ever put significant trust in a leader only to have him or her fail you? Have you ever been disappointed with a boss's or employer's leadership? Has a parent failed to lead you or your home well? Have you ever been disillusioned by the poor leadership of a pastor, certainly not Castleton, or a Christian leader? Are you jaded? Are you cynical when you think about your leaders? Why is it that we are so disappointed these days with our leaders? 
Why do we believe they have failed us in so many respects? Well, I believe a big part of the answer to that question is that we all have a deep desire. In fact, I think it's how we're created in some respects to look to our leaders to set things right, to solve our problems, to provide what we think we need, whether it's at home, at work, the church, the country, the world. And I actually don't believe that this desire is inherently bad or wrong. As I said, I think actually it's how we're made. I think the problem actually occurs when we begin to look to our leaders to be more than they can be, even should be, and deliver more than they're able. You see, when that begins to happen, and when they fail, and they will, we become disillusioned, disappointed, even cynical. People as flawed as we are, we can never be the types of leaders and provide the types of leadership for which our souls long. Now, please hear me. I'm not giving a pass to bad, abusive, or even evil leaders. In those kinds of cases, it completely makes sense that we would be disappointed, that we would want justice. Those types of leaders ought not to be leading. Nor am I saying that we should just throw our hands up in the air and just give up trying to lead and actually bring about positive change that would honor God by saying, I'm, I'm just not going to engage in leadership at all. I'm not saying that. What I'm proposing is that perhaps we are looking in the wrong place for the type of leader and the types of leadership for which our souls at their deepest level long for. Therefore, I think we need to look to and place our hope in a leader with whom we can trust. Someone who will not personally fail and will be able to deliver on all of his promises. A leader who is both good and great and capable of solving our greatest problems. Of course, the leader I'm talking about is Jesus. Right? That's what you would expect me up here saying that. And it's absolutely true. This morning, we are going to consider Jesus as John portrays him in one particular narrative in his gospel. And during our time together, I hope to answer the, the, the question, what is it about Jesus that makes him such a great leader that not only will he never fail us, but that we can wholeheartedly trust him? What is it about Jesus that makes him such a great leader? So if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're nearing the end of our John study. We'll begin at verse 28, and we'll move on through uh, into verse 19. So listen as I read from God's word. And I'll just warn you, this is a little bit of a lengthy passage, but hang in there, and uh, it'll be really exciting as we see how Jesus is portrayed here. John 18, starting at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them, the Jewish religious leaders, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Jesus took, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, and the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The troublemaker and the religious rebel rouser Jesus has finally fallen into their custody. In fact, one of their own follower, one of his own followers had led the group of guards and soldiers to the garden where Jesus and a small band of followers had been waiting. Upon his arrest, they subjected Jesus to two highly improper court proceedings under the former high priest and then under the current one, Caiaphas. Having found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and deserving of death, they cart him off to Pilate, the Roman governor, in hopes of persuading him to execute Jesus as they could not under Roman law. Upon arriving at Pilate's Jerusalem uh, headquarters, the Jewish religious leaders wait outside so as not to defile themselves by entering the home of a Gentile. This was so that they would not be defiled and then be prohibited from partaking in the Passover commemoration. Their deep concern for obeying the law is especially ironic, given what they've done to Jesus. So Pilate meets them in the courtyard. What crime do you accuse this man of committing, he asks. They respond that the very fact that they're standing there in his presence indicates that Jesus has committed some grievous evil act. Pilate seeks to put it back onto them, but the Jewish leaders tell him plainly that they want him to execute Jesus because they cannot. Had they been permitted, they would have drugged Jesus outside the city and stoned him for claiming to be God. So Pilate goes back into his headquarters and he summons Jesus to himself so that he can question him without the Jewish leaders around. Are you the king of the Jews? He inquires of Jesus. Now, Pilate doesn't really care theologically if Jesus is the king of the Jews. His immediate concern is if Jesus is some sort of self-styled political leader who might lead some kind of rebellion and install himself as king and create all kinds of problems for Rome and by extension for Pilate in his role as governor. He's wondering, is Jesus going to be a problem for me? Well, Jesus, without directly saying, I am a king, claims to be just that by stating that the kingdom that he oversees is completely different than any earthly realm. 
He tells Pilate, if my kingdom were like yours, then my followers would already be taking up arms and fighting for my release. Pilate catches Jesus' claim to be a king. And he asks, so, you are a king. Jesus essentially says, yes, in fact, I was born to be king. I've come for the purpose of ruling and reigning and telling people what is true. In fact, he says, everyone who knows the truth, everyone who is committed to truth, they listen to me. Pilate, with deep cynicism and a snarkiness, says, what is truth? Well, after this little interchange, apparently Pilate is not convinced that Jesus is guilty of any capital offense. And so Pilate goes outside to seek his release. He proposes to the Jews that he would free a Jewish person in his custody, as is his custom on the Passover. And so he picks the king of the Jews as the person he would like to release. It seems to me that Pilate could not anticipate the reaction he was going to get. The Jewish leaders declare their preference for the criminal Barabbas over Jesus. Not this man, they say, but Barabbas. So Pilate, still hoping to release Jesus to them, turns him over to his soldiers to have him whipped and beaten. Now, the Romans were masters at all sorts of gruesome and terrible forms of physical punishment, torture, and execution. And what seems to be the case in this instance is their most mild form of mistreatment. Now, mild, I certainly wouldn't want to experience that. But the abuse that was intended was to essentially rough up the victim, keep them in line, remind them of who's boss, and you better not step out of line in the future. That seems to be the intent, certainly not to kill him. And so the, the, the guards, the soldiers that Pilate turns Jesus over to have picked up on his kingly claim. So they find a purple robe, the, the sign of royalty, and they fashion a crown, but it's made of thorns. And uh, some of the thorns in that part of the world on some of the plants were up to six inches long. And so imagine them taking those and smashing that on Jesus' head and beating him with their fists and whipping him with a whip, all the while sadistically and mockingly calling him the king of the Jews. Which again, there's so much irony that John laces through this narrative He is, in point of fact, the king of the Jews. Again, Pilate goes back out to the Jewish leaders, but this time he brings Jesus with him and presents the the beaten, the bloodied, the battered Jesus, hoping that this will convince them that he's not a threat. I can release him to your custody. But again, he misjudges the whole situation 
And after proclaiming Jesus' innocence again, they tell Pilate plainly now the charge that they have against him. This fellow claims to be the son of God. Therefore, by our laws, he must die. What's so interesting, John tells us that Pilate not only is convinced of Jesus' innocence, but now he is even more afraid. Now, perhaps Pilate is superstitious. That would have been very common. And something about Jesus and his claim to be God, perhaps that stirred some fear in him. Perhaps his otherworldly claim to be king frightened him. And we know from Matthew's gospel that his wife had a dream that said, leave this man alone. And perhaps that's what's given cause for his fear. But regardless, he's afraid. But not afraid enough to do the right thing. So in this fear, he goes to Jesus and says, where are you from? Where are you from? But Jesus this time does not answer. So here Jesus is standing, beaten, bloodied, knowing what's coming. But he's calm. He's collected. He's unflinching. He's standing in front of the most powerful man in that part of the world. And outside are the most, second most powerful group of men in his part of the world. But he's not afraid. He knows who's in control. He knows who he is. He knows his father loves him. He knows his father is unfolding the plan that they had agreed to in eternity past. Well, Pilate is provoked by Jesus' silence. You dare not answer me. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to kill you in the most gruesome public way the world knows? Jesus, the king of the Jews, simply replies, Pilate, your authority over me only comes from above. Your authority to make any decision regarding my disposition in this moment is granted by a far more powerful king and kingdom. Now, imagine that you are hearing this story from John's gospel for the very first time and that you're fairly unfamiliar with Jesus in his life. Consider how you might be experiencing this narrative. Think about how the tension and the, and the question hanging out there builds. What will happen to Jesus? Will Pilate succeed or will the Jewish religious leaders? Will Jesus be freed or will he be killed? It's interesting, I've, I've been uh, in ministry, I've had a chance to go to different parts of the world, some of which there is not any great witness for Jesus. And we would show the Jesus film, a movie, a, a theater, theatrical production about Jesus's life taken from the book of Luke, different than John's gospel, but similar accounts. And what's so interesting, whenever the individuals watching the story and life of Jesus unfold, when they come to this moment and they see what happens, they are aghast. This is such a miscarriage of justice. 
How could this be that these people would do these things to this man? Indeed. And underlying all of this is the question, what kind of king is he? What kind of king is Jesus? Because that's what John is putting on display here. Well, thus far in our study of, of John's gospel, we have seen that Jesus, he's the eternal word who became a human being in order to live among people who were in darkness so that he could save them. We've seen over the last several months that Jesus is the son of God. He's in fact the great I am of the Old Testament. He's the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection, and the life, and so on. And now as John's gospel moves to its climactic moment, one other facet of Jesus' identity, one other aspect of who he is, his kingship is now put on full display. Jesus is the son of God. He's also the king of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, that one in David's line who would rescue and restore his people. And John gives us a glimpse of what kind of king will this king of the Jews actually be. So what is it, as I asked earlier, what is it that makes Jesus such a great leader? I think there are three things that stand out in this passage. The first is, he is the pure king. He is the pure king. Now, Pilate, Pilate catches this at least to some extent. We see in verse 33, after talking to Jesus, he goes back outside and tells the Jews plainly, I find no guilt in him. Two other times, he declares Jesus' innocence to them. As Roman governor and his understanding of Roman justice and Roman law, at least as far as that's concerned, Jesus has not violated anything. He is not guilty. He's innocent. He is pure. He doesn't deserve capital punishment, to be sure. Well, what Pilate catches a glimpse of is actually the tip of the iceberg in terms of Jesus and his purity. For his purity, his moral integrity, his, his without-sinness runs far deeper and far wider than Pilate appreciates. John speaks of Jesus as being light shining in the darkness. It shines into a dark world and it pushes the darkness away. There is no darkness in him that can stand. There's no darkness out there that can stand. He overcomes it. He is pure light. He is perfect light. The darkness flees. John also presents to us that this world, when it talks about the world in John, it's this place where there is corruption and fallenness and rebellion against God. And Jesus steps into the world, but he isn't corrupted by the world. It can't, the world can't overcome him. He actually overcomes the world. Hebrews 4 captures the sense of Jesus' purity so wonderfully. It says, we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us that Jesus knew no sin. And not only did Jesus avoid doing the bad things, not only did he avoid ethical and moral failure, but actually we're told Jesus fulfilled every letter, aspect, dimension of God's law perfectly and totally. In Romans 5, Jesus is compared to Adam. And think about Adam, right? He's set in the garden. He's reign and rule, dominion over the earth. You could say Adam was the first king of the world, the first leader. But Adam failed. Jesus did not. He fulfilled everything that God intended for humans to live by and to do. He perfectly and completely obeyed God's requirement. He is the pure king in the greatest and most absolute sense. So imagine then a leader incapable of lying or making a decision out of vanity, pride, selfishness, or greed. Imagine a leader who doesn't need to project an image, to cover up wrongdoing, who fully keeps everything that God says is morally right, and he does it because he loves God and he loves his neighbor. Imagine a leader who doesn't have to worry about someone discovering that skeleton in the closet or hide a wrong decision. Imagine a leader not trapped in self-righteousness and jealousy like the Jewish religious leaders or fear and political expediency like Pilate. I realize it's difficult to believe, but such a leader exists. His name is Jesus. He's the only pure leader. He's the only pure king. Now let that sink in for a minute. Let it cut through our disappointment and our cynicism and our anger. That deep longing we have for those kinds of leaders who will solve our problems, who will be what we want them to be, only one exists. Jesus' purity makes me want to know him. Jesus' purity ought to make us want to trust him. So what kind of leader is he? We see from our passage he is a pure leader. We also see in our passage that he is a powerful leader. He's a powerful king because he's the king of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 36, Jesus talking to Pilate says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then in 9.11, again talking to Pilate another time, he says, you, sir, would not have any authority unless it was given from above, from a different kingdom that's on a different plane, that's a different world. The kingdom to which Jesus refers here is what the other gospel writers refer to as the kingdom of God or Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes it's a little difficult to get our minds around what is this kingdom of heaven thing? Well, I'll give you the technical little definition and then we'll try to unpack that. Think about the kingdom of heaven as the realm or the place where God's rule 
and reign is, uh, where, where he rules and reigns, where it's exercised and where it's recognized. So where the rule of God is exercised and recognized. Now, he rules over the whole world, exercised. But where it is recognized in heaven and where else? When we think of kingdoms in an earthly sense, we think of places. We think of lines on a map. But God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, it's people. It's people who say, Jesus is my king. He's my ultimate authority. I submit to his rule and reign in my life. And so the kingdom of heaven in our world today is where the presence of Jesus shows up in the midst of his people. Now one day, it will be all of earth. There won't be any more lines on any maps because the whole earth will be the place where his reign is established and it's recognized. For now, it's us, his people. So let us think of the church as the embassy of the kingdom of heaven and the people of God are his ambassadors to the people of the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus is saying, that's my kingdom and I'm its king. And by the way, that kingdom is pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful because I'm all powerful because I'm God. So that would be a difference between an earthly kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. There's another one, and this gets to what I had just said. Jesus' kingdom knows no limit to its authority or power. Now here in the United States, our government is pretty powerful, but there are particular restrictions and limits placed on that power. And the founders recognized there's a good reason for that. But there is no limit on King Jesus' power. He possesses all powerful. He possesses all powerful. I'm sorry. He possesses all powerful. Oh my goodness. He possesses all power because he is all powerful. Now, normally, that's a scary thing, right? We know from history that when someone possesses that much power, when they sit atop a government and a kingdom, often that turns out very badly for the subjects in that kingdom. Stalin, Hitler, Paul Pot, Mao. But here's the great thing. Our all-powerful king, Jesus, that's not a problem because he's also the pure king. We also see that his power is rooted in truth. In verse 37, Pilate asks, so you are a king? To which Jesus replies, you say that I'm a king. And essentially he says, you're right. It's for this purpose I've been born and come into the world. And then he goes on to say this, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. John tells us that Jesus came into the world full of truth and grace. In John 14, we're told that Jesus is 
the truth. That is what makes his power great and good. It's ironic that Pilate even asked what is truth because standing right in front of him, he was looking at truth and power. Now, we've all experienced leaders, I'm sure, who they could size up a situation, whether it's in business, a problem in the home, and they assess it correctly. They understand reality. They have a good grasp on reality. They know what's true, but they are powerless to fix it or solve it. They're right, but they can't do anything about it. We also know leaders who have great power, but they care nothing about what's true, right, and good. And those are dangerous and terrible. But Jesus marries power and truth and purity. There is no other leader like him. That's what makes him so great. That's why he is such an awesome king. Now, my, my degree, as uh, Eric mentioned, I think a lot about leadership, and so I apologize, you're actually getting a lot of my thinking on some of this, so bear with me. But the more I've thought about the fact that we often look to other individuals, other leaders to solve our problems, to to bring us life, to be more than they should be, that certainly is problematic. But the more I've thought about this, the more I have realized that our problem goes beyond just merely looking at earthly leaders to do what ultimately only Jesus can do. No, actually our greatest problem is that the leader we often look to for those solutions is ourselves rather than Jesus. We are more willing to look to our rulership, our kingship. We are more willing to trust our own wisdom, our own goodness and greatness to do what it is that we want leaders to do. We set ourselves up as kings of our own little kingdoms, deciding what is right and wrong in a given moment, pursuing that which we think by our own determination will deliver us from our problems and give us the life that we think we deserve and need. We think we know best. We believe that times we are good enough and great enough to live our own lives. And honestly, in those moments, we are no different than the Jewish religious leaders and Pilate wanting to push Jesus out of the way so they could make their own decisions by their own determination and do what they wanted to do. In essence, and here's here's the, the crazy thing, right? As people who claim Jesus as our king, in those moments, we become insurrectionists wanting to overthrow his rule in our heart and install ourselves as king. Now, I say all that so strongly because I know I'm really good at it myself. Just ask my wife. You know, the scary thing is being a Christian for uh, 30 plus years and having been to school is that I know what King Jesus says. I know what he requires. But there are moments, and sadly, many of them, 
when I simply ignore those things and I take the crown from Jesus and I try to put it on my head because I think I know what's best and right concerning my money, my time, my energy, my kids, my wife. And over the years, I've tried to ask the question, why? Why do I do that? And there's a, there are a lot of answers. One is I size up a situation. I think if, if I actually go the route that Jesus wants, expects of a subject of his, that's pretty scary. There's risk in doing it his way. If things go badly, who's got my back? Who will take care of me and who can pick up the pieces? In those moments, I think I can. But in point of fact, I can't. Only Jesus can. Only he is good enough and great enough to be king. But there's one other thing. We've seen that he's pure. We've seen that he's powerful. There's one other dimension that we see about Jesus' kingship that just makes him so beautiful and perfect. And that is that he becomes the punished king. You see, because Jesus is pure, he must deal with our insubordination, our rebellion, the rebellion that every human being has committed. And he has to bring the full weight of his power to deal with those wrong things. Now, in most countries, when people challenge the authority of the government, they might get harassed, they might get arrested, and in some instances, they might get executed. Here's what's amazing about our pure and powerful king. He says, you rebels, you insurrectionists, you guerrillas, you deserve, by my just standard, to be punished. Well, what I will do, I will take that punishment on myself so I can have you. So I can have you. In verse 38, Jesus, uh, after speaking to Jesus, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Do you know what Barabbas had done? John tells us he's a robber, so he's a criminal. What's interesting, in the original language, that word connotes robber and other things. And we know from the other gospel accounts that he is also an insurrectionist. He's a criminal, and he's a traitor to Rome. And you know what Rome did to its insurrectionists and rebels? They deserved the worst kind of execution. They would string them up publicly on a cross where they would hang and die an excruciating and horrible death as a message, right, to other would-be insurrectionists. And in that moment, these Jewish religious leaders knew this. And instead of Barabbas 
hanging on that cross? They wanted Jesus hanging on that cross. So Pilate sat down in his official judgment seat and presented Jesus, the king of the Jews, to the crowd in the courtyard one more time. And he says, here is your king. And he was met with shouts of, take him away, crucify him. Really, Pilate says, shall I execute your king? Pilate asks, I'm sure, with a huge hint of sarcasm. Yes, our only king is Caesar. And what they were really saying is, our only king is ourselves. They didn't care about Caesar. So in an act of political cowardice and a grave miscarriage of justice, and as part of God's incredible and great plan, Pilate hands Jesus over to the executioners. And in that moment, Jesus, the innocent, rightful king of the Jews and the entire world, takes the place of a guilty criminal and rebel. He becomes the guilty insurrectionist. The lashes that Barabbas deserved, Jesus takes. The cross that was intended for a rebel gets the king. Though innocent, Jesus is declared guilty, and the rightful ruler is charged with being a usurper. He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we talk about these things at Advent because the cradle takes us to the cross. He came for this, to save insurrectionists and rebels and usurpers. What a great king. Jesus is the only leader worth following because he alone is pure, powerful, and willing to be punished, not for good subjects, but for rebellious subjects he will make good. So why would we give our allegiance to anyone else? Why would we look to any other leader than Jesus? Why would we want to be king of our own lives when there's only one who is truly good and great? As you leave here today, remember the message of Matthew 18 and 19. Because Jesus is the perfect king, we can reject all other would-be kings and submit ourselves fully to him and his leadership. That's what we can do. He's so great, we can follow him wholeheartedly, unreservedly. That's the kind of king he is. Let me pray.